Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Geopolitical Pico. My name is Juan Francisco and I'm joined as always with my friend Ronan Worsworth. How are you doing, man? Not too bad, Juan Free, not too bad. How are you doing? Well, getting by. <laughs> we have a, I'm getting by and we have a really uh, sensitive topic today. Uh, so I think we can, uh, we'd rather dive into it. We'll say a doozy uh, of a topic. A doozy of a topic. It's clearly the topic, well, uh, definitely top two topics of the year. So, so yeah. Well, I think, first of all, I think a lot of people have asked why we haven't said anything on the Israeli-Palestinian situation at the moment. And now we finally are. So we wanted to, first of all, leave it for a little while because there's two major reasons I think we didn't want to touch it to start with. And first of all, I think if we look at the rhetoric around the conflict, it is so hostile and so polarized that everyone is divided into two camps and there's no room for gray area, which is, let's face it, the, the real way the world operates. So I think the, 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 this tension exists and it becomes very difficult to give good commentary without just being accused of being biased one way or the other. Um, so we're going to aim to give you very neutral uh, commentary based off our perspectives of what's going on and the geopolitical implications. And then the second major reason why we wanted to leave it for a while is because in the immediate aftermath of the October 7 invasion of Hamas into Israel, the Israeli response was was large, but we didn't know how it was going to evolve over time, what what this level of support would be for, for Israel and for the IDF from international community. And now, after two months have passed, we can see some different trends emerging. Uh, we can see different regional forces shifting and changing because of the conflict. And I think so now is a really good time to talk about the geopolitical situation because of the because of the invasion and because of the response and, and talk about how it might play out over the next um, few months, year. Etc. So I don't know. First of all, yeah, do you want to run dive through? Let's dive into it. Uh, I yeah, think, you can, uh, you can run us through first of all. Uh, what what is the situation? So give us a brief overview of what's happened, where we're at today in in mid December. So um, as we know, on October seventh, uh, Hamas launched an attack in Israeli soil, uh, which uh, costed the life of uh, twelve hundred uh, Israelis. Um, which triggered a response by the Israeli government uh, with, a, with a massive bombardment uh, at a level that uh, the region had not experienced before. And as far as now, um, with the latest uh, data that comes from the 15th of December, uh, there's been 18,000 uh, deaths within, within Gaza, according to the Ministry of Health of uh, Gaza. Uh, more than 51,000 injured people. Uh, out of the 18,000 casualties, there's been more than 70% of them are either children or women. More than 60% of all the residential buildings in, Ga in the Gaza Strip are damaged or destroyed. And uh, since the ground operation that Israel launched in northern Gaza started, the IDF has confirmed the, the death of 119 soldiers plus more than 600 wounded. So we are talking about numbers that, although it is a long-standing conflict, and uh, this has been, in 2021, there was a, there was a, there was a conflict in 2014, 2009, 2008, 2006, the scale of uh, casualties is unprecedented mm. in the conflict uh, since it started, basically. Um, so clearly, it's, uh, it's uh, in my opinion, it's a... Um, it's a turning point in the in the region because of the scale of 
first of all, the Hamas attack and second, the, the Israeli reaction. And I think we can talk a little bit. This is the basis. We all know we are seeing the news uh, every day, uh, although the numbers may divert a little bit. Uh, they're actually more or less agreed. This data that, are, that we are taking, we're taking it from the, from the United Nations. So um, I think we can talk a little bit about, um, let's talk about, let's forget about that part. Let's talk about the geopolitical part. Let's talk about what was the development of Israel's support since the beginning, and how has it changed a little bit now? Yeah, so I want to start way back. Obviously, America is the US. Sorry, is Israel's number one supporter traditionally, still now. That hasn't changed. However, the rhetoric has changed significantly, even within the United States, with the level of. Uh, I mean, we've seen both sides. We've seen anti-Semitic uh, issues within the US, but also. Uh, many, many anti-Palestinian voices talking out and saying that this is Israel's right to self-defense, which I would debate has been well and truly crossed by by this stage. However, that level of support uh, has, has diminished significantly through the US's allies. So if we see way back at the beginning of the conflict two months ago, there was quite a firm line from American allies, such as the Five Eyes, um, Canada, US, sorry, Canada, UK, New Zealand and Australia, of course, <laughs> uh, that that this was that this was within Israel's right to conduct the operation in self-defense against the hostile threat of Hamas. But due to the scale of the response of the IDF and the and the level of indiscriminate bombing, even as the US has acknowledged, that support has completely dried up. So we've seen last week at the UN General Assembly vote, the Canadian. Australian and New Zealand delegations issue a joint statement condemning the indiscriminate bombing, calling for a ceasefire. Um, and then over the weekend, Germany, France, and the UK foreign ministers all spoke out against against the bombing campaign continuing and asking for a, a pause in the conflict, just due to the level of the the indiscriminate campaign and and. Damage yes, to the level of civilian casualties in this conflict has been uh, reported to be higher than any other conflict in the last forty years and, in the world. And German, France, and, and UK are all very big, long, long-term allies of the Israeli, of the Israeli government as well. So it's not so it's it's kind of unprecedented they've begun to feel this isolation. And I guess that was epitomized by the the UN General Assembly vote last week, where there was only ten countries voting in favor of. Or against against the immediate pause uh, to hostilities, including the U.S. And, and Israel. So that level of support has completely dried up for Israel. Whereas I would say for for Palestinians, there's much more sympathy. I think everybody agrees that uh, Hamas is is a really terrible organization, except if you're talking about Iranians or mm-hmm. or a few or a few different uh, different groups. Like nobody actually is really supportive of. Hamas and Hamas have been in power in the Gaza Strip since 2006, I believe. So we can even point out that before, right before the right before October 7 happened, in a, in a survey conducted by the Arab Barometer uh, that finished in the 5th of October, actually the the um, legitimacy of Hamas within within Gaza was clearly eroded there was less than 20, less than 30 percent of the population that believed that Hamas was doing any anything good there I mean 
uh, inflation was rampant. Uh, the poverty in uh, the poverty within the Gaza Strip went from 31 percent in 2011 to more than 50 percent nowadays. So not even like the Gaza population was also not that uh, not that uh, wary of uh, of um, of Hamas. Although it is true that um, a, that uh, ground surveys made now, which have uh, well, in, can I say, given the circumstances, their their legitimacy is got to be put in question. But there are some reports that say that now the population may be more in favor of Hamas, although it's something that it's not uh, not really testable. Well, I think here yeah, this is something we'll touch on later a, a bit, but it actually creates a new wave potentially of Hamas fighters because they're going to be radicalized due to the Israeli actions. A another point is that uh, Israel's concerns that uh, Hamas uses different uh, civilian population as human shields is very true. We've seen many instances of that in the past. So that's kind of the justification for for some of the bombing campaigns, saying that these these are hideouts of Hamas. But the problem is now we've seen that develop into covering, I think, over 80% of the territory of the Gaza Strip is considered legitimate target, according to the IDF, and have been given evacuation orders. So there's really running out of places to go. And I think the international community is seeing this, and, and I think the, the line has been crossed. The problem for Israel is like that they, they can't really step down now. So I don't know. It just... clearly, I mean, one of the biggest problems following that, in my opinion, is that the rhetoric that the Israeli government has had since uh, this far right government is in place. I mean, you literally have ministers who are members of terrorist organizations, which are considered terrorist organizations. Uh, ben Gibir, the minister of defense, is, mm. uh, he was the the lawyer of the settlers in the West, the, the settlers that were doing illegal settlements in the West Bank. So, I mean, obviously, that doesn't give a good image mm -hmm. for for Israel's allies. And I think now we can just go, I mean, talked a lot about Israel. Now we can talk about the regional implications because there's a lot of the... Let's go on geopolitics. <laughs> well, there's a lot of the, the neighborhood surrounding Israel, which has become very hostile potentially, and, and the environments changed completely since the attack of Hamas. So do you want to... Yes. Uh, basically, what we've seen are uh, U.S. military bases and assets being attacked in Syria and in Iraq systematically by different groups. Uh, we've also seen a ramp up of uh, Hezbollah's activities in order in, in southern Lebanon, um, although still not entering in a full scale war. There's uh, there's um, reports that suggest that Hezbollah may actually be accumulating uh, militants in the border. That was close to the border. That was just over the weekend, actually, that Hezbollah were potentially putting troops down to the southern border of Lebanon with Israel in anticipation of a full-scale conflict and basically that they weren't going to step down. And so I have heard from sources inside Lebanon that the mood is very somber, that they believe that this the is going... is very somber because the Lebanese government said it before some months ago. Uh, they they don't want to enter in a war with Israel, but Hezbollah is too, too big within Lebanon. Exactly. And they don't want to risk a, a civil war within Lebanon, which is a country that is already pretty... Um, in a pretty dire economic and social yeah. situation. And also, apart from this uh, Hezbollah, which is Iran-backed, we also have the Yemeni Houthis, which uh, have been scaling up their missile attacks against the uh, targets of uh, Israel and the US in the Red Sea, and even 
launching the, the launching the longest capacity missile ever launched by a non-state actor covering 1200 kilometers which is uh, impressive traveling over Saudi Arabia traveling over Saudi Arabia many many states like developed states don't have that uh, capability that, that, those capabilities but those have clearly come from Iran so I think that's that's the thing here if you look at a lot of the conflicts in the region are being stirred up by Iran while other other Gulf countries may be very outspoken against Israel they're not necessarily getting involved to the same level of as Iran but Iran's not getting directly involved but through these proxy forces being Hezbollah, being the Houthis, and being the different Iraqi and Syrian... Uh, yeah, different rep- militias. Yeah, militias. Different they're, all, they're all getting supplies from Iran. Uh, Indeed, for example, we can, we can also say that in the first, uh, in the first weeks of the, of the war, Israel launched the airstrikes and missile strikes against uh, the airport in Damascus to um, basically try to inoperate the, the, mm-hmm. landings, the landing strips because... Uh, they suspected that some uh, that Hezbollah or like um, Iran-backed militias were receiving were receiving um, weapons and uh... and then to go back to the Houthis, so they they haven't just limited themselves to firing missiles towards towards uh, Israeli territory, but we've seen over the last month a massive step up in attacks on civilian shipping. Um, cargo going through the the Gulf and through the Red Sea, and this is extremely extremely important because if we if we talk about that exact route through the through the Red Sea there, um, which passes the tip of Yemen, so it's it's kind of quite close to where they're able to strike. Twelve uh, percent of the whole world's shipping goes through that strait, mm-hmm. so this will severely affect world supply lines if they were able to continue so let's remember that not that long ago the Suez Canal was actually blocked because uh, of uh, an incident with a ship in in the canal and it delayed the international trade months and months and months it also affected the economy of many countries it created inflation so it is actually something really important we have two big corporations such as uh, BP and Costco which are already saying that uh they are wearing their concerns about uh, transferring their, like doing their trade through the strait, and that is something definitely to take into account for the rest of the world. Uh, that is that's new as well. So that's new information that these that a few companies have started to limit their shipping through the through the strait there because of the risks associated with it. And in response, we've seen the U.S. Navy step up uh, their their presence in the region with three aircraft carrier fleets being deployed at the moment to the. To the Red Sea there. So we'll see how that continues to develop. But in terms of the Houthi rebels in, in Sana, they've said that they're going to continue the attacks for as long as Israel keeps attacking um it, it keeps attacking Gaza. So I don't know how that will develop, but currently we see like a severe escalation within within the shipping routes and, and the flow and effects of that are gonna be felt by everyone i guess yes and uh, i would like to point out that they're going to be felt specifically by egypt i think it's a country that has not been well obviously it's part of the conflict because the only border crossing that is uh, systematically being open to let aid into gaza is the border of rafah which is uh, in the south of the of the gaza strip uh, in the north sinai uh, governorate with the sorry the border with the north sinai governorate and there's 
two problems that I think are really critical for Egypt. Um, the first of all, obviously, well, obviously, uh, a high amount of its revenue of its GDP depends on the on the trade that goes through the Suez Canal. If there is a stagnation of the trade, if there is a disruption of the trade, that's going to affect deeply the pockets of uh, the Egyptian government. And also the possibility of a high amount of refugees entering the Sinai, probably the northern Sinai governorate, um, can also uh, can also help in destabilizing uh, an already an already um, weak country in many senses. It's a country that was hit badly when the Ukraine, uh, when the Russian invasion to Ukraine happened because they depended massively on the grain that was exported from the region. Uh, they've had in inflation. They have several problems, civil problems, security problems already in the state. Uh, and although the biggest actor, the biggest historical actor and terrorist actor in the Sinai Peninsula that used to be Al-Qaeda in the Sinai uh, seems to be not that much active uh, at this point. It clearly the the overall uh, amount of uh, of adverse circumstances may actually trigger a problem in Egypt. And uh, and I mean, I've heard things such as Egypt might collapse. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as that, but definitely it would go. It would be a problem. It we just had the Egyptian election uh, last week where. CC won again, but we we've seen from international election observers that those votes are really anything but free and fair. I think there's I didn't see the official figures for this one, but last time we got ninety nine point something percent of the vote, and it was widely expected it would be something similar this time. And he and he's been re, reaffirmed as the president, so there is many internal problems with Egypt already before this conflict. And so as you say, it's really problematic for them. And then I think for other Gulf countries, so if we talk like Saudi Arabia, for instance, uh, Qatar. Super quiet, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, exactly. And I think Saudi's been very quiet. They've provided a lot of aid. I think mm. that's the rich The rich uh, Gulf countries have all been providing a lot of aid, but some have been much more vocal than others. So if we look, for instance, uh, Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, has been extremely vocal against Israel. However, however, most of that just seems to be rhetoric because... Following his his uh, outspokenness against the the Israeli regime and Netanyahu and calling for a ceasefire and and threatening all sorts of things, he signed new trade agreements with Israel and and I think literally the Palestinian cause is our cause. Uh, he went out. He they this is actually pretty fascinating. There was a government organized rally in the airport of Ankara, if I am not wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, in like hundreds of thousands of people went there and he said that the Palestinian cause is their cause, although they are still doing deals with Israel. Because I think that's just part of Erdogan's playbook. We've talked about it a long time ago in an early episode about uh, the geopolitics of Turkey. And I think he's just playing to that. He wants to project himself as a leader of the Islamic world, as a, as a supporter of the Palestinian cause, mm -hmm. as the lead supporter potentially, and, and fighting for them, but actually is much more... The Khalifa, <laughs> much more pragmatic, I guess about about yes, and uh, I, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we cannot ignore that before we were um, before October seventh happened. What we were seeing was a trend of normalization of ties between uh, regional uh, between regional um, 
uh, enemies in the Middle East. Uh, we saw Saudi Arabia and Iran sitting down, meddling by China uh, to try and normalize agreements and uh, relations. Uh, we saw Syria getting back into the Arab League, accepted by the states that expelled it uh, previously. Uh, we've seen a reapproachment even with Israel. Uh, I mean, we've seen we've seen Morocco accepting Israel. Well, we've seen a couple countries uh, um, recognizing Israel, and we've also seen Saudi Arabia uh, in negotiations with the United States in between to recognize Israel and what not to recognize. I would say that's a little bit. That was a little bit too far away. With, not to not much to normalize. Normalize ties with Israel, that is for sure. Which would have been a historic change as well. And this was all in the, in the last six months leading up to the to the start of the conflict now. Yes, actually, uh, if not because of this, we would have definitely been making an, uh, an episode on normalization on ties in the Middle East and uh, how can we foresee it in, the, in 2024. But obviously this... Um, this has made the shift, although it's a little bit unpredictable at this point how will it uh, continue. And I want to touch a little bit on, um, we've talked about uh, the West because of being natural allies, well, natural allies, because of being allies of uh, Israel. We've talked about uh, the Gulf countries and uh, the Middle East and the uh, MENA region with uh, Morocco and so on. But also, um, there's a part in the legitimacy, international legitimacy, morality of the West uh, that there is an actor that is using for its own... There are several actors, but I think there is an actor that is using it for its own gains, that is Russia. Um, as uh, Russia is using this situation as leverage against the West with third countries that uh, basically they don't have the same rhetoric of uh, support with Israel, and thus Russia comes to them and says, look, uh, the United States is supporting these people uh, against the Palestinians, blah, 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 and like, we are supporting the Palestinians. Although I would argue that Russian support for Palestine is none. Uh, actually, yeah, no, Russia is much closer to Israel, historically. Uh, but... However, yeah, Russia uses it. Uh, uses especially like the US veto in the UN Security Council, for instance. The US has been vetoing any resolution that uh, calls for Israeli ceasefire or, or uh, any sort of truce. And Russia then makes this equivalence that that is the same as them using their veto um, for any resolution that's against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, so they, I think they're using it that way and kind of legitimizing their own invasion by, by making the equivalence. Mm -hmm. And then secondarily, the, the other impact, I mean, this is not directly from Russia, but it, I think it's really hurting Ukraine. And the reason for that is that we've seen support since the, the European summer really dry up for Ukraine militarily, um, especially from the US over the last few months. A lot of the US support has been diverted, the military aid, etc., has been diverted from Ukraine to Israel, especially in the early days of the war. I think that might slow down over the coming months, but but um, that early support was massively towards Israel, and we've seen Ukraine really struggle to get the equipment and to get the ammunition and to get the weapons that they need to continue to defend the country. Um, and I saw a report from the Institute for Study of War last week, for instance, that said if the US continues to not supply Ukraine with what they need, 
uh, over the next few months that it's highly likely that Russia will be able to make a breakthrough and and potentially occupy all of Ukraine, which would invalidate two years of support, basically, and, and kind of makes no sense to abandon the Ukrainian cause at this point, especially when they've been able to withhold so many Russian offensives. Um, yes, even the German government said it uh, recently that without the support, without the Western support, uh, Ukraine could actually be conquered by Russia. Which, as you said, it's um, from the strategic point of view, it's uh, it's a lot uh, for for the West. I mean, it's a lot of mm, a lot of resources, a lot of uh, rhetoric spent on on Ukraine. Now, um, Ukraine has uh, for the first time been accepted into the accession part of the and um, the accession process of the European Union, which. Uh, doesn't mean that Ukraine will enter the European Union in the next year, but uh, it's a step forward for for Ukraine to actually be uh, a member state. And obviously, if the if this U.S. support uh, to Ukraine wavers, also uh, the opposition in the United States is not that pro sending weapons to Ukraine, uh, continue sending weapons to Ukraine. So uh, and again, they're tying a lot of it that support to the Israeli yes to support for the Israeli government. So I think in in many ways the two conflicts are so different. One is uh, a Russian invasion and a territorial conquest, which is completely outside the the international order and the rules based order. And the other one is a conflict between a, a much more powerful partner, uh, uh, much more powerful country in Israel against a terrorist organization that hides behind civilian population and then an indiscriminate bombing of that of that region so i think that they're nothing alike but they're being tied together in many ways which is kind of unfair to ukraine and to all the work that they've done in in combating the the russian offensive but that's the that's where we're at at the moment so so it's a little bit of a situation do you think <laughs> i mean um clearly uh, this something will have to be written in the future. Something will have to be investigated in the future as to how did October seven happen uh, and what are going to be the consequences. Right now, it's really difficult to foresee. What we see is that clearly um, this conflict is challenging certain changes that were happening in the world uh, for a more peaceful multilateral call it X, I don't know, because like, we could have a long conversation about how the world was changing, but clearly this has made an impact. It's, now, now it's changing again. And it's changing again and it's changing. Uh, I would not adventure myself into forecast exactly what will happen because uh, the rhetoric that we're seeing uh, coming from the Israeli government is one of, we are not going to stop this, uh, regardless of the international support. Uh, it's interesting as well because the internal dynamics within Israel, I think Netanyahu is basically finished uh, when the war ends. I don't think he can hang on to power. So he's going to make it his legacy that he is saying that he wants to eradicate Hamas, which is basically impossibility because... I mean, his his legacy, he, the way he won the election was by saying that he was the one that was going to provide security to Israel and... 
spent millions and millions of dollars in in creating this electronic fan, electronic border, blah blah blah. So it would change, and then he's like during his mandate, Israel has suffered there more was... losses in one single day than any other time in the exactly. history. Exactly. So I mean, he's in my opinion, he's. It should it should be finished internally because of the also he already repercussions. Had, he already had so much scandals. Throughout. He already had scandals. He was already being uh, prosecuted because of corruption. Uh, and I mean, so. I think another thing that the conflict has highlighted is is two things with the Israeli Defense Force. Firstly, we we thought that Mossad and their intelligence service was almost infallible. I heard from many people before the the conflict about how they had the best intelligence service in the world, and I always argued that that should go to the US by a long way and that Israel's nowhere near. And we've seen that this massive intelligence failure has led to um, the attack being able to be conducted. And I mean, even just over the weekend, we saw, uh, I was telling you before, that there was a, a tunnel exposed mm -hmm. from 400 meters from, from the northern crossing, yeah. uh, which was wide enough to drive vehicles through, four kilometers long, uh, opening up on the Israeli side. And so this was able to funnel weapons funnel people through ready it for the attack. Through the Eret uh, position, which is a secure military... It's a secure military base of yeah. Israel. Like, it went but, under it. Exactly. It's, it's, it's completely crazy that they were they didn't have any any information about this until just finding it over the weekend. And, I mean, the, the second major thing we've seen with the IDF is, like, they're, they, they're very indiscriminate in the way they act. Uh, over the weekend or, or just late last week as well, we had three Israeli hostages uh, unfortunately be killed by IDF forces. However, what's come out in the aftermath of that was that they were all waving white flags, shirtless, asking for help because they were which hostages. Shows a little bit the, which shows us a brandy of... Exactly. Yeah. And I think this is only being investigated because they shot three Israeli hostages, but it definitely shows the either the, either the level of indiscriminate hatred that the IDF has or the poor level of training that they can't even... They can't have any discipline to to engage the rules of law. And we've seen, I, I wouldn't say, I'm not going to go out and say that there has been war crimes committed, but I would say it's it's very, very likely. Well, and I would say yes. I would say yes. Either we never, maybe. No, no, I'll say yes, of course. But I, I whether they'll be prosecuted for it or not is another. I'd say, in, in my opinion, of course it's been committed, but there will I'll unlikely be any formal Prosecution of there is clearly that that can also go up to like what's happening in the West Bank with the with the illegal settlers. I mean, now the Israeli government it's like for the first time has put an eye on saying like no, okay, like this has to stop a little bit, but it's just because the United States has says that they're gonna start revoking um, passports, uh, sorry visas uh, for for people that are related to to this. So like literally, the Minister of Defense, as I said before. Is related to this, the Minister of Defense of Israel, and uh, already ben Gavir, ben, ben Gavir, and, ben Gavir. Like the, the, and the level of uh, of uh, civilian casualties in the West Bank prior to October seven, as of twenty twenty three, was the highest since two thousand and six, which means that the settlements were expanding, mm -hmm. people were getting evicted violently from their houses. That there's clear reports that the IDF was um, was uh, assisting uh, settlers to attack Palestinian villages. I mean, clearly there is something that is uh, wrong here. And uh, it's something that has to... This doesn't 
obviously it doesn't take the responsibility of Hamas for what they did and the, the cruelty of the attack, but it is obviously something in order to look at the future a solution of the conflict, like a permanent solution of the conflict. For uh, for uh, to wrap up, basically, like what's the what's the end game? Like from both sides' perspective, because I think international community wants to have a two state solution, uh, and I just don't see that as a geopolitical reality that can mm. be that can come to fruition, because the same conditions that existed already prior to the attack and prior to the response still exist, where you've got one country in Palestine which is divided. Uh, and and completely enveloped just about with, by two entities in one side in the West Bank the Palestinian Authority rules with not that much legitimacy because the people are not that happy in, uh, in the Gaza was terrorist uh, recognized terrorist organization then they sometimes enter into into civil wars then sometimes are fine and and, and for Israel that threat is going to remain as well from from the from the radical groups within Palestine that they could be attacked so. They're, obviously, they have some sort of legitimate fear of that because it, we've seen it happen uh, time and again and then this, mm -hmm. with this uh, terrible October 7th attack. So that, that, that level of fear is somewhat legitimate, mm -hmm. but that's not going to change come a peace settlement. And as I said briefly before, like they will have radicalized a whole new generation. I think it was the ex-UK Defense Secretary said over the weekend that Israel's going to be dealing for 50 years with the repercussions of their actions because of the the new groups of terrorist actors that they will have created within the Palestinian territory. So I don't understand how you could go to have a two-state solution in the way that it's drawn up um, in the 1967 agreement. I mean, geopolitically, to me, that never made any sense anyway. The Oslo Accords at this point. Exactly, exactly. Like, like to, to have those two states exist in the way that they do, uh, with the borders that they are, it, it cannot work, in my opinion. And... That's the sad reality of the situation. So then it says, okay, what is going to come next? I think the international community has been more condemning of Israel's actions recently, especially as we talked about their allies. And if the last one of their of their major allies, if the US was to fully revoke support, that could definitely come about a shift. But then it, I feel like the international community, uh, already what we see the Gulf states and the Arab states calling for is... A properly implemented two-state solution, mm -hmm. which is, as I said, geopolitically, it doesn't really make sense. We've seen other conflicts arise because of this. We see Nagorno-Karabakh earlier this year, uh, where you have a hostile territory enveloping a smaller a smaller country. Then it, it, it it's always going to lead to some sort of level of oppression. Literally everyone there. Exactly. Everyone. And the only way it was figured was... So I think... Also, in uh, in the way that Israel's conducting their operations and the level of, as you said, 60% of all residential buildings in Gaza are either destroyed or or damaged. And there's a possibility they're just trying to make it unlivable uh, so that even after the conflict, then there will be no, then there'll be no opportunity for uh, the Palestinians to continue to live there because the, the environment is so destroyed that yeah, there's so no infrastructure existing. So they're trying to forcibly move people out not by not by deporting them but by making their their lives just so miserable like you they basically they give you an evacuation order then bomb your your apartment building so you've got nothing to come back to now and you've got no recourse so i think okay. it's that it, the unfortunate situation for the palestinians has always existed uh this situation where 
their their country can't work as it was drawn up and envisaged envisaged by the UN in its original construction. And the, in some ways, that that made this conflict inevitable. Uh, I mean, we've seen it bubbling for fifty years. The escalation maybe was unprecedented, but the the conflict always has but, existed. Yes, it's not. That, we cannot we cannot say that the conflict started. And and any sort of truce or anything like that, even if, as Israel says, they eradicate Hamas, it's it's, it's a nonsense. It's not going to happen. Mm. Um, and so this this uh, position, I don't know how you can actually solve it. It's a, it's a yeah. geopolitical mm. enigma. This is probably one of the toughest geopolitical challenges that uh, are currently in the world. And uh, although we try to think about solutions and we try to think about how could it, uh, how could it improve? I mean, in the end, just like probably as everyone that is listening to the podcast right now, uh, who's still with us here, uh, we've thought about this. We've had many talks about this prior to this situation, even uh, this is obviously one of the iconic conflicts uh, that you learned uh, since the beginning when you started investigating about this. And we don't have an answer. Uh, the only thing that I can say is that uh, I think there's need to be rethought of the of the two-state solution. Yeah. Uh, clearly, as I agree with you, and uh, uh, the I would claims, the claims of the Palestinian population has to be addressed. The security of uh, the Israelis uh, has to be addressed. Uh, but both of them have to be addressed. Either both of them are addressed, or this is a never-ending conflict. And, exactly. Uh, we will just keep on repeating a will next year we'll have another podcast saying okay this happened again and i mean i would also urge people to not be black and white about this because it's not black and white i think both sides have committed terrible acts one being hamas which is a terrorist organization and one being netanyahu's idf and the people that suffer the most are the civilians on both sides of the of the conflict and i think often that gets forgotten in the in the rhetoric that comes out and, and you, you need to be fully supporting Palestinian cause or you need to be fully supporting Israel or you're anti-Semitic. And I think both of those uh, absolutes are wrong. You, you, you can say, okay, they're, they're, the, the situation always calls for some level of Israel hostility because of the threat and the way that they have treated the Palestinian people for a long time is wrong. So I think that's... that's and honestly... Um... This is the the word that we haven't mentioned in the entire uh, uh, podcast, but uh, I mean, when you have the Secretary General of the United Nations uh, saying that there is an ongoing genocide mm. in the region, uh, it's something that regardless whether you agree with the UN, see its functionality, see it's not, see the problems that it's got, see its inability to surpass the veto power of the countries, uh, when the Secretary General of the UN systematically calls for a ceasefire because it's something that we should really but I also learned, as a society we should really take it and i also learned a new word today which was domicide which they said is not classified as one of the criteria for genocide but that there's calls now for it to do that because of the exact situation we said before mm -hmm. when not even just killing the people bombing their places to live of course, and, and course, forcibly yeah. forcibly moving them through that situation. Exactly. So as I said, that's not a considered genocide moment, but there's now calls for that. And I, I think some of them are legitimate. And yeah. the word domicide, unfortunately, came into my vocabulary today. So it also came into my vocabulary today, <laughs> interestingly enough. So yeah. 
Okay, well, uh, it's been a pretty dense uh, episode. Um, thank you, Ronan, as always. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Guys, please let us know your thoughts on on everything that we try and produce here. And and as always, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We keep on uh, publishing, although we haven't been that active with the with the explains. We will come back. Uh, we will come back with content. Uh, we are ramping some maps. With, uh... with some maps, do some stuff. So, yeah, just... Uh, just uh, if you like our content, show us your support with a like, uh, subscribe to our... Uh, Share with your friends. And yeah. Hashtag TGP. Hashtag TGP. And we'll see you again in the next episode of the Geopolitical Pico. Bye-bye. The Geopolitical Pico is created by Ronan Wordsworth and Juan Francisco Muñoz. Two Geopolitical Studies postgrads from Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Follow us on Instagram at The Geopolitical Pico or Twitter at The Geopico for more content and follow us on every podcast platform.